0: Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Listeners should be aware this podcast contains strong language. Today on the Indo Daily, Paul Kimmage and the Lance Armstrong story
1: go into that room and just kick him straight in the fucking balls that's the only thing this guy is gonna respect go in sit down and go for him from the first question go for him Lance you've spoken recently about the return of Evan Basso and Floyd Landis um, after so I'm sitting in, in, a, in a big uh, auditorium at the press conference so I'll stick up my hand the microphone comes to me and I, I ask the question what is it about these dopers that you, you seem to admire so much I mean, he absolutely rips the shit out of me. I mean, he absolutely... Jesus. Excuse me?
2: What is your name again? My name is Paul Kimmage. I work for the Sunday Times. I asked for an interview, but I didn't get one.
1: It's kind of tough. I didn't expect that he would come at me. That he would come at me so strong.
2: When I decided to come back, for what I think is a very noble reason, you said, folks, the cancer has been in remission for four years, but our cancer has now returned. Meaning me, so I think it goes without saying. No, we're not going to sit down and do an interview.
1: Talk about the knockout blow! I'm sitting and listening to this shit.
2: You are not worth the chair that you're sitting on. With a statement like that.
1: I'm um, sorry, uh, I. don't. You know, I'm kind of think. I don't think. Fuck you! All right, give me the give me the microphone back. I'm not taking this fucking shit. Put a course. No, 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 no. no. There's no way you're getting come back on this.
0: I'm Kevin Doyle, and today on the Indo Daily, the downfall of Lance Armstrong, the American cyclist who was the only rider to win seven Tour de France titles, and how the Sunday Independent Journalist, Paul Kimmage, helped expose his doping. On the yellow, on the green jersey, on. Paul Kimmage, national road race champion 1981. It's been harder than I ever expected, but this last week has been uh, unbelievable. Olympian, 1984. Tour de France, 1986. Will you do it again next year? Uh, certainly. <laughs> it's crazy, but I will. Journalist, but then cycling outcast and drugs cheat. Is that the CV summed up as best I can?
1: Well, uh I would never describe myself as a drugs cheat, number one. It's a complete absurdity to describe me as a drugs cheat. Yeah, uh
0: I notice op- drugs though.
1: I think there's a difference between uh the three occasions when uh I use up uh to being equated with and I have been many times with what Lance Armstrong did.
0: Okay, I think you're going to have to explain that for, for me, Paul. First of all, perhaps tell me the context in which you took the amphetamines. Okay. Then. How, how how did you first come to do that, or how, how did it even okay, first so, come on the
1: radar? So I turned professional in 1986 with a fra- small French team called RMO, and uh, my first experiences of drug use in, in cycling was within two months of turning professional, I turned up at the team hotel for a race in Normandy. At that stage, in 1986, uh, it was a very different time. There was no internet, uh, no WhatsApp, no phoning home. None of that technology was available. Uh, And France was a very, very distant and far place. I say that because I turned up at that race with a small little briefcase. And in that briefcase was uh, some notepads and some letters and correspondence I used to write letters home to my then-girlfriend, Anne, and indeed my family. So I turned up at this small little briefcase before this uh, pro race with my team, and they start laughing. My teammates are laughing at me. And I didn't understand what they were laughing at until that night. I'm sharing a room with one of the other riders, a French rider, and he has a little briefcase as well. Except when he opens his briefcase, it's full of the weaponry needed to compete as professional cyclists. So syringes, amphetamines, all of the gear you need to compete as a professional, he's got stored in this little briefcase. And that's what they all thought, that's what the joke was. The joke was, well, here's a guy just home professional and he knows how this game works already. And I hadn't got a clue. Anyway, that night... uh, it was explained to me how, how it worked. So he took out uh, a little small pot of amphetamines, he took out a syringe, he cut the syringe down so it was as small as possible with the amphetamine in it. He took out a small vitamin tube, he packed the uh, syringe into the vitamin tube uh, with cotton wool, he screwed on the top, and he said, tomorrow that's going gone in my back pocket. And I was just just about, you know, four or five inches tube stuck in his pocket. So next day we're riding the race. We've done about uh, three hours. And he says, OK, Paul, this is how it works. Comes up, taps me on the shoulder, takes out the tube, pulls out the syringe, pulls up his sleeve of jersey, slips the syringe in, puts it back into the tube, puts it back in his pocket. That's it. Within 35, 40 seconds, he is now riding on amphetamines. I just blew my mind. I could not believe it because he wasn't the only one. So that was uh, the culture, if you want, that I found myself in within two months of Touring Professional in 1986, and I experienced various episodes of that right through my first year as a pro. On the yellow, on the green, so in 1987, we get to the Tour of France, I ride a Tour of France for the second time. Uh, it's the year Stephen Roach wins. And uh, within three days of the finish, I abandoned the race and I'm in really poor, Morale-wise, a very poor form, and I get a chance to ride in this Criterium, a small race, small Criterium, appearance race, and I go into the hotel, and eight of my teammates are there. We're staying together before the race, and they say, come on, Paulie, are you going to get into this game or not? Because up to now, I have not, uh, I've never taken anything at all, other than one venom injection. Bad experience, and I said, right, fuck it, let's see how this works. Let's be part, one of the boys. So I, I uh, one of the teammates had the, had the and he shoved it into my arm. And this, and the reason we did it in the room as against out in the race was these criteriums are only like an hour, an hour and a half. So you wanted to start with the charge working straight away. So people asked me about that. And therefore I regret, given the circumstances of, as I've outlined to you, and that I was labelled a drug cheat as a result of that, if I ever regret that decision? And I, my my answer is absolutely not. I have never, ever regretted those three times when I used the infenaments. And you'll say, well, why not, given the inverted stain on your reputation? Because I understood the power of performance-enhancing drugs. It was an eye-opening experience as to the power of these drugs and the effect they had on you. So I walked into that room feeling uh, a bit low, unsure of myself, worried about how I'd perform. I got the amphetamine. I'd have ran through the wall. I was invincible. I'd have ran through the wall. So I understood how powerful the drugs were. There was a price to be paid for that because three weeks later when I decided, hold on a second, this is a slippery slope here. This ain't going to end well. You start with amphetamines, you move into hormones. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Like mentally, that was it. I was done. So within a net year and eight months of my pro career, I know I'm done. Nobody pressures you to do it. It was absolutely my own decision to do it and my own decision to stop. And on, um, on both sides of that, uh, there was no repercussions from my teammates other than you're fucking idiot. You're a fucking idiot. That wasn't just in a small team that this went on. I had the experience a couple of months before that of going up to Belgium and sitting in a room with some of the best riders in the sport. And I'm talking about the best and watching them do exactly the same thing. The guys that are idolized, the guys at the very top doing it, the, 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 the mental effect it has on you are, are pretty devastating. So for whatever reason, I decided in 1987, I was going to stop. Or I don't regret it. Uh, because it gave me an understanding and experience of how the game worked and how powerful the drugs were. I rode a Tour de France in 1989 on the 13th stage. I stopped and that was it. That was my last race as a pro. Uh, I got off the bike. I spent six months writing this book, Rough Ride, about my experiences. And I wrote this explosive book, Rough Ride, about how the game worked.
0: And it's fair to say that after Rough Ride came out in 1990, then you were definitely a cycling outcast.
1: You have spat
0: in the soup. The vulgar French expression means you spilled the beans, you've let the cat out of the bag, you've given the game away, you've you, you have a turncoat, and you talk about the drugs in the cycling scene. Right. And the implication is that most of them are at it. Because the blowback on top of you is well documented, um, I imagine that was incredibly tough, but you persisted.
2: That's my way of affording of, of the things that I want. You know, like other kids have jobs that, so they can go out on weekends or so they can buy whatever they want to buy, so triathlon is like my job.
1: Lance is 16, a junior at Plano East High School in suburban Dallas. He earned about $5,000 last year as a rookie pro triathlete, and shocked even himself by challenging the best in the
2: world.
0: And by the time a guy called Lance Armstrong comes along in the mid to late 90s, in some ways you had been banging the drum around drugs in cycling. To the point where maybe it was becoming a muted noise for a lot of people.
1: So my career, I stopped in 1989. That year, Lance Armstrong rode the World Junior uh, Road Race Championships in Moscow. He was essentially a triathlete. That was his first real shot at road racing, at cycling road racing. Uh, But within three years, in 1992, he was riding for the US team at the Olympic Games in Barcelona. And that's when I first became aware of him because my brother Kevin rode in that race in Barcelona on, the, on that same Olympic team, and I'd come across Lance as a rider to be watched. And in 1993, I went back to the tour. This is my third tour to France after I'd written the book Rough Ride. And I'd gone back to the tour as a journalist because I never wanted to... Uh, I was never going to run away and hide. From the moment I wrote the book, I was going to stand up and uh, answer any criticisms that were leveled at me. So I went back to the tour in '93. With David Walsh and Billy Stickland David Walsh was writing a book about the Tour de France we met Lance Armstrong in Grenoble during the rest day he'd won the stage two days before he was only 22 years of age and already something special I mean to win a stage of the tour in your first tour was, was really special and I remember that day because when David interviewed Armstrong and came away from it he was just glowing in his praise for this guy this guy was the real deal the real deal Uh, he had an attitude Uh, even at that stage he had an attitude in that same year 1993 he won the world professional road race championships at the age of of 22 that was an extraordinary performance
0: Lance Armstrong 21 years of age is America's second only world ever road race champion and he's going to make the most of this it's still a long way to the finish he's just making sure nobody's coming But they're not Lance, she's going to win this, he's giving away all his time...
1: And that's how good he was. He was an exceptional rider, but an exceptional rider over one day. He could not do it in the stage races. His Tour de France, uh, he didn't finish the Tour in 93, in 94, 36th in 95, which was a decent performance, but 36th is like way back. And in 96, doesn't finish again. Uh, goes to the Olympic Games, gets cancer at the end of 1996, gets cancer and returns to the sport in, I think, May of 1998, just before uh, the Tour de France in 1998, which he's not riding. That Tour de France was starting in Dublin. Uh, That was the Tour de France when one of the leading French teams, uh, one of the officials with a leading French team, driving to Dublin is stopped at a Belgian, French-Belgian customs post. Is asked to open his boot and the thing is laden with performance-enhancing drugs. And that kicks off the greatest crisis in the history of professional cycling, uh, the Festina affair. Festina was this guy's team. Last night, the director general of the Tour de France issued a statement saying
0: that Team Festina, the number one team in the world, has been removed from this year's tour. Now, this comes on the heels of an admission by the lawyer for Bruno Roussel, the team manager, that there was a doping plan in place for the use of performance-enhancing drugs under strict medical supervision.
1: So that tour starts in Dublin. Lance is not there and Festina is a watershed moment. For the sport, but also for me, because I've had eight years of guys telling me, you made all this up. We don't believe you. Now everybody believed me. It was vindication after eight years of being kicked in the face. People now were openly saying, yeah, Kimmage just right.
0: It was vindication, but you kind of just moved from one train track to another because it wasn't as simple as going, I told you so. Uh, The battle continued because uh, Lance Armstrong went on to win seven Tour de France. Well
1: it was never about for me it was never about I told you so and for me it was never about Lance Armstrong. It was about the sport. This is a problem the sport has that it needs to address and the sport would not address that problem. And then 98 came along and then for the first time the sport says we need to address this problem. They're saying all the right things and the 1999 Tour starts one of the guys lining up for the race it is, a is Lance Armstrong. There, but the winner of the Tour de France
0: in that big field is the American Lance Armstrong, and what a ride that has been! It'll be remembered in the millennium as one of the finest sporting achievements in the history of not just cycling, but of
2: any sport.
1: And Lance Armstrong wins the first Tour de France, the Tour of Renewal, and uh, it's not just uh, another tour winning story if you want it it becomes something much bigger because of the fact that he just come back from cancer it's a Disney story it's absolute fairy tale this guy concert, conquers cancer and comes back at a time when the sport really needed the good story they needed good news and this was a blessing for them and here we have cancer uh cancer survivor coming back to win the tour. Hallelujah.
0: Did you suspect from there immediately that something wasn't wasn't right with Lance Armstrong's performances?
1: When Lance Armstrong crossed the line in Paris if you had suggested to me right Paul this is your family this is your wife and these are your kids Uh, we're going to line them up in front of a foreign squad if you get this wrong is Lance Armstrong doping? Right? No. Your family is dead if if you get this wrong. I've said 100% he is doping. 100% in 1999. Absolutely. I've never been sure of anything in my life. Listen, it ain't rocket science. You get this guy, best ever finishes 36th. In a million years, he's never going to win the tour. Gets cancer, comes back, wins the tour. Sorry, that's not how it works. I knew then. I was even more convinced a year later when he wrote his famous book, um, with Sally Jenkins It's Not About the Bike a fantastic book I mean inspirational in a lot of ways I witnessed many times cancer survivors going up to me sign this Lance you don't know what you've done for me I got all that I really do understand how important he was to the community uh, the thing about uh, the book It's Not About the Bike was as I said a fantastic read but I looked at it and I said hold on a second He'd had uh, five, six years of a pro career at a time when the game was rotten, absolutely rotten. And yet, in his book, there's not a word about it. I mean, that's a giveaway. That is absolutely absolute giveaway. If he was clean, if he was everything he purported to be, that book would have been all about, well, listen, isn't it great after Festina and after all that's gone before that I can come along and show that you can do this clean after having cancer? Isn't that a great message? Except that message wasn't in the book. So it, so the, the telltale signs were there all along. It was the omission rather than the admission. Absolutely. And it's there in, in, in that book.
0: But of course, it did all come out eventually. And an Irish woman actually played a very big part in that. Emma O'Reilly, who was part of Armstrong's backroom team, she turned whistleblower and talked to the journalist David Walsh for a book that was full of revelations. What were you thinking when the empire was starting to crumble?
1: Uh, Davis started investigating Lance, uh, again, from 1999. He was there in 1999, and uh, he'd seen it, and he didn't believe it. And he started investigating it straight after that. And his first breakthrough was a link between Lance and this famous sports doctor, Michele Ferrari. And again, no clean rider would have associated himself with Michele Ferrari. And for Lance to be associated with McKelly Ferrari was the first kind of strike against him.
0: It's a strike, but it's guilty by association. Absolutely. It doesn't prove anything.
1: It doesn't prove, and it didn't prove anything, but it still raised some questions. As a result of that uh, breakthrough and the piece he wrote about that, as a result of that, Emma O'Reilly then came forward And they made invaluable contributions to the essential work that David did with another French journalist, Pierre Ballester, in LA Confidential, which was published in 2004. But look, everybody wants the fairy tale. Nobody uh, wanted to believe the book. And when it was published uh, and when the Sunday Times used an extract from it, Armstrong sued the Sunday Times. Uh, for the guts of a million quid and won and uh, and that was a serious serious blow uh, to David to the newspaper and by extension to myself because at that stage I had joined David in the paper
0: and I said to you before you said after the Fistina affair that you had been proven right but it came back so Lance goes on wins seven Tour de France. As you're still writing about this stuff, you've now started writing about some of the biggest chiefs in cycling, as well as the cyclists themselves. Yeah, you were at the Sunday Times, as you you said, but the legal writs started to arrive.
1: Well, one important point to make is this: uh, Lance tested positive in '99, his very very first Tour of France. He tested positive for a cortisone. That was a catastrophe. A catastrophe for the governing body, of the UCI. Catastrophe. They couldn't allow it to happen. Straight after Festina, this icon test positive. I mean, that's it. The sport never recovers from that. So they cover it up. They suggest to him, right, get your uh, team doctor to write a, a prescription for a, a saddle sore cream. With it was that. Post dated. Post dated, yeah. And that's how he'd explain
2: it. We're not talking about doping, we're talking about a simple skin cream and i wanted to 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 talk to the press i always want to talk to when there's a problem i want to speak with the press today that there was clearly a problem i wanted to speak to the press press conference come here on velo club explain the situation uh le monde is looking for a doping story but there's not one there's a story of skin cream
1: that was the cover-up so from that moment then the uci the world governing body are complicit then in the lie okay in 2005, Armstrong would have cut the tires after seven tour wins. And he's home and dry, and that's it. Story over. All of the stuff, David's book, the allegations, all of that isn't worth a shite. He's, he's done it. He's a megastar. He's appearing in films with Ben Stiller. He's dating Sheryl Crow. He is flying in private jets mingling with politicians, this guy is an absolute home and dry. He wins 7-2, more than anybody uh, has ever done won before, an absolute icon. He
0: brings it to an end as a winner. Armstrong wins the
1: time trial and wins the- Torres makes his famous speech in the Champs-Élysées.
2: Finally, the last thing I'll say for the people that don't believe in cycling, uh, the cynics and the sceptics, I'm sorry for you. I'm sorry you can't dream big. And I'm sorry you don't believe in miracles. But this is one hell of a race. This is a great sporting event. And you should see. This is a sport
1: you can believe on. I pity those who don't believe in miracles. I mean, absolute Jesus Christ. That guy was completely shameless. Completely shameless. Anyway, in 2006, Lance's first year away from the sport, the tour is won by another American, Floyd Landis. And. Floyd is not Lance, he doesn't have the, uh, he doesn't carry the same weight that Lance carries in terms of his status as a global superstar, and when Floyd tests positive, that's it, he's busted. They bust him four days after he wins a tour in the Champs-Élysées. They stick him with a, a two-year ban. Two other superstars, Jan Ulrich and Yvonne Basso, are busted at the same time. So they have, they get similar bands. So there's a lot of talk in the aftermath of this about cycling's problem and, inverted commas, the Armstrong years, how bad they were from cycling. And Lance is listening to this and he's really fucking pissed. I mean, he's really pissed. Uh, One of his teammates was a guy called Jonathan Vodders, former teammates, and Vodders set up this team in 2008 uh, called Slipstream, and they announced very nobly and admirably they were going to do it clean they were going to show the world you could do this clean and again Lance is listening to this and fuck this and he decides after 2008 and I'd spent that summer with the Slipstream team on the tour writing all this stuff and I'm not suggesting that Lance was reading this but I know he was I know he was and I know he wouldn't have been happy with it and in August of 2008 Lance announces he's coming back And that is his downfall. (laughs) Ego has been the downfall of many a man. And that was the moment that Lance's career started to slide. One of the things I did, and one of the important um, moments for me was in 2009, so Lance comes back in 2008. And in 2009, his first race in the US is the Tour of California. I've written to him because, again, one of the messages of his comeback was, I'm going to be more transparent. I know I wasn't; didn't have a great relationship with some journalists. Things are going to be different now. I wrote to him. I said, OK, I've heard your message. Maybe you'll sit down and give me an interview. And, of course, <laughs> there was no chance of that. So, this was my only access to him was at a press conference. So, I'm sitting in a, in a, in a big uh, auditorium at the press conference. So, I stick up my hand, the microphone comes to me, and I, I ask the question. Lance, you've spoken
2: recently
1: about I mean, he absolutely rips the shit out of me.
2: You are not worth the chair that you're sitting on.
1: I mean, you absolutely, Jesus, it's kind of tough. I didn't expect that he would come at me, that he would come at me so strong. Talk about the knockout blow, and I'm sitting there listening to this shit, and I'm so jeez, I, I don't, you know, I was kind of thinking, I don't think, fuck you, right, like, give me the, give me the microphone back, I'm not taking this fucking shit. But of course, no, 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 there's no way you're getting come back on this. And this is at a time in 2009 when I, I don't, th- I don't think there's Twitter. I'm pretty sure there's not Twitter at that stage. But the internet is sort of starting to roll, and like it goes, this thing goes bloody viral, right? Anyway. So, <laughs> oh, I, I was absolutely proud of it. Yeah, I was absolutely proud of it. Um, which is not to say that the aftermath was, was anything I felt good about. It was awful. It was awful because I tried to write about the press conference in the Sunday Times a week later. I was told by my editor, no, I wrote the piece. No, no, we can't run that. We can't run that. We're not doing it. I tried to write about him on the Tour de France uh, when he came back. A few months later, I was told, pieces were pulled. No, no, we're not, we're not doing it. He sued us. We're not getting into it anymore. And I'm being told by my employer, no, 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 no. And look at, you know, that's not good for your career. So that hurt me. Um, and all I really had really was that clip. I mean, thank God for it. That people actually, you know, saw me standing up to him and, uh, and saw or got some sense that I was trying to... Uh, to take the fight to him.
0: I put it to you that you, you say ego is a downfall of Manny man. You know, I've read where you ended up in fighting with Pat McQuaid. You lost your job in the Sunday Times. You could have been facing financial ruin. You were obviously married to Anne at this stage. You have kids, you have responsibilities outside of proving what was going on in the world of cycling. Was your ego Playing out in some of this as well?
1: Well, uh, I was committed. And I was committed not just to Lance, but to cycling and to uh, trying to do my best for the sport. But what about it, at was, home? it? It was never ego. So I wasn't the same after Rough Ride was published. And I doubled down. I've uh, got a streak in me. I'm a stubborn bastard. I am stubborn to, to a degree that is that is uh, destructive, if you want. Uh, that uh, the truth is there, and I'm going to stand for it, and whatever the consequences are. So that's what it was. That's what it was, and um, and it hurt me, and it hurt by extension the family. Um, But look, you know, that's, that's, you know, I say this about Lance. He's a lying fucking bastard. It's in his nature. And I suppose telling the truth and trying to help cycling was in my nature. It was a commitment to telling the truth to my own detriment, to my own destruction. It was not ego. There were no rewards for doing what I was doing. I could have done what so many in the sport did, fill my boots, because that's, that was the reason why Armstrong survived for as long as he did. Everybody in the sport, from the governing body, sponsors, advertisers, other cyclists, they made a lot of money out of his life. I was never going to do that. Coming up in part two. I think it was about two o'clock in the morning, I was sitting at home on my own. And wasn't gonna wait up for it. When we first met a week ago today, we agreed that there would be no holds barred and there would be no conditions on this interview and that this would be an open field.
2: I think that's best for both of us.
1: Let's start with the questions that people around the world have been waiting for you to answer. And for now, I'd just like a yes or no. I'm not sure what he expected. I expected nothing, but oh my God. Yes or no. Did you
0: ever take banned substances to enhance your cycling performance? Yes. My thanks to Paul Kimmage. I'm Kevin Doyle, and today's episode of the Indo Daily was researched by Garrett Mulhall, produced by Mary Carroll, recorded by Gavin Hennessy, with sound design by John Smith. Archive clips were from Channel 4, BBC, CNN, Classic Cycling, AP, The Late Late Show on RTE cbs own network the wall street journal and independent.ie if you enjoy the indo daily don't forget to like follow and leave us a review and to hear more of our award-winning journalism visit independent.ie or wherever you get your podcasts